If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn this evening to the Gospel of Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. In the bulletin, it says that we will look at the opening six verses this evening. On further consideration, I decided to endeavor to deal with the opening 14 verses. So, you know me, and you're maybe wondering, how is that possible? We might not get out while it's still the Lord's day, <laughs> but, but we'll try. We'll try to stay within the usual time frame and look at these verses. The reason for that is it's just a theme that seems to come out in all these verses that I want us to pull together. So, Luke chapter 14, as we continue in our uh, going through the Gospel of Luke, we come to the 14th chapter, and let us read the Word of the Lord from verse 1. It came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go and answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit? And will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day. And they could not answer him again to these things. And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden, when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honourable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come say to thee, Give this man place. Thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Then said he also to him that bade him, when thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, but thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Amen. And the reading there at the 14th verse, this is the word of the Lord. Receive it by faith, believe it to the saving of your soul. Let's, let's bow together in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Father, we thank Thee for Thy word, and we thank Thee for the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have so much to learn from Him. And given that we are to walk even so as He walked, oh, how far short we fall. Every day we are proof we give forth proof of our shortcomings, but we thank Thee that sanctification is a work 
of God's free grace, and we cast ourselves upon Thee that we might be constantly changed and transformed. May it please Thee, the living God, to come to this congregation. Sanctify us through Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. Make us a holy people, to be holy for Thou art holy, and to love Thee, to love Thee enough to give up our idols, to give up our pet sins, to give up our most treasured ambitions, should the Lord call for it. We pray, please, help us. Help us to see the glory and the majesty of the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. May we fall down at His feet and worship Him. May we worship Him tonight. Should there be one here without Christ, open blinded eyes, save their souls. Oh God, we beseech Thee in Christ's name, show mercy to sinners, extend Thy kingdom, build Thy church. We pray, giving Thee our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. The account that we have before us, beloved, gives to us the third occasion when we are told of a, an interaction between the Lord Jesus Christ and the Pharisees on the Sabbath day. So, coming to the third time we have this, I don't want to belabor the same things that we have dealt with before, but suffice to say that we believe that there is a, a perpetual application and teaching and commandment in the Sabbath. We believe that one day in seven ought to be given over to God. We believe that because it's right there in creation. We believe it because it's underlined in the giving of the Decalogue in Exodus chapter 20. And we believe that even nature itself, rightly understood, helps us see the need for rest. Above all of this is the gospel application, the fact that we are to rejoice and celebrate in what the Lord has done for us, both, of course, in creating the world and creating us, but more to the point, the fact that He has recreated us, He has regenerated us, He has given us life, and we are to celebrate His great saving work. Coming to the Pharisees again, we, we meet a group of individuals that are often outcasts as far as our perception of them. We tend to like kind of lump them all in as bad, but they weren't all bad, were they? I mean, you come to John chapter 3, and Nicodemus is like the ruler of the Pharisees, and he is showing curiosity, interest desire to know more. He acknowledges that we know that thou art a teacher come from God. We're aware of this, and he is very sincere. And while he does not seem to be converted at that point, as you progress through John's gospel, you realize God does a work in his heart, and he trusts in Christ himself. Perhaps the most prominent Pharisee, I think we can say, is that of Saul of Tarsus, a man who was in a career of rebellion against those who followed Christ, and yet the Lord showed mercy to him. So, not all Pharisees were bad, but certainly many times we see the sad condition that they were in. And a, perhaps the worst thing that we see in them is their pride. Pride. Constant evidences of pride. These are people that say they love God's Word, appear to have a reverence for everything that relates to God and yet constantly we have evidence of pride. And that's what we have, again, in the passage that is before us. More pride. And so that's why I'm taking the opening 14 verses, because the whole thing really is, is Christ exposing their pride. Pride, in various degrees, in various ways, seen in various angles, with the opening scene that we will look at in just a moment, as well as observing everyone that had gathered on that occasion, and then a specific word to the one who had invited everyone 
to gather with them on that occasion as well. Pride. So let us consider these verses with the Lord's help. And to note three things, there is here proud religious legality, there's also proud personal superiority, and proud selfish partiality. So legality, superiority, and partiality are really the, how you, you can see the three sections that are before us in this portion of God's Word. So let's first consider proud religious legality, the opening six verses. And you'll see, first of all, that their pride sets a trap. The pride of the Pharisees sets a trap. Look at verse 1. It came to pass, as he, that's Jesus, went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. Behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go, and so on. We'll get to the other verses in a moment. So Christ is invited to dine with a Pharisee. What a scene. (laughs) A Pharisee going up to the Lord Jesus and saying, would you like to come for dinner? Showing hospitality, showing an apparent degree of affection, of interest, of consideration. But it was a trap. I think before we proceed, I I was struck by the thought that with the Pharisees' invitation to this feast on the Sabbath day, it it sort of struck me that, I don't know if you've ever thought about it or not, about how to honor the Lord on the Sabbath with regard to our eating. And whether you've ever thought, you know, should should there be less excess on the Lord's day? Should we be more simple in our dining? Should we perhaps even eat less and have an element of fasting? on the Lord's Day? Would that be more pious? Would that be a greater observation of the Lord's Day, a greater adherence to His Day? But you see here, this is what struck me, you see the Lord engaging in this feast. There's a feast set for a huge number of people. The plan is for fellowship there. Of course, there's other ulterior motives, as we'll note. But the Lord Jesus comes, and He is not sinning by His presence and participation on this day, which underlines for us the use of the Lord's Day with regard to inviting people into our homes. It's a wonderful time to extend an invitation to people into our homes, the Lord's Day. And it's not wrong. Sometimes we read language, even in uh, our uh, substandards, and we read language and we get the impression that you know, this, this holy keeping of, of the Sabbath is such to the degree that we bear not even look at another person or speak to them. You know, that clearly isn't the case. Clearly, there is a place for fellowship, for moderate feasting, and gathering people around and having an enjoyable time together. It's a good use of the Lord's Day. I encourage you. I encourage you to make use of the Lord's Day in this way. But the whole thing is a setup for at least two reasons. The end of verse 1 says, they watched him. They watched him constantly. They're just keeping an eye on him. They won't turn their back. The whole time, Christ can feel the gaze of the Pharisees that are in on the trap. He can feel it. They're watching him. The other reason I think we can conclude there's a trap is by the fact that when the man with the dropsy 
is healed, he wasn't really part of the, of the inner circle. Because once he's healed, verse 4, he took him and healed him and let him go. And it seems to be that he, he left. He, he was gone. He's, the idea is he departed and went away. But I think you can see it, whether or not that is specifically the case. You can see this sense of there being a setup here. And the Pharisees have arranged to have Jesus over for dinner, as it were, that they might watch him. This is similar if you go back to Luke chapter 11, though rather than looking at his actions in Luke chapter 11, it is looking at his, his words, keeping an eye on what he might say. Luke 11, the end of that chapter, verse 53, and as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. So it's the same idea. And as I read these passages, I can't, as a preacher, I can't help but note and underline over and over again the courage of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is fearless. It's like what we looked at at the end of the previous chapter when the Pharisees come and they say, Herod will kill thee, and it, it doesn't faze him. Not for a second does it faze him. He has the agenda. The agenda is set by God, and he's going to pursue and finish that work, and no threat from man is going to move him. And you have the same courage here. He knows their thoughts. He knows their plans. He knows all that they're, the trap that they have set for him, but he carries on. And what's striking is, if you, if you remember, and I've touched on this a few times, but if you remember the origin of the Pharisees, that this is a, a, a group, a sect that came about in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and as they feel the encroaching Hellenistic influence upon the, the visible body of the church, as it were, they are trying to protect God's commandments, what God requires of His people. And in their zeal, and I would imagine many of them, in their sincerity, they are, they are curbing the commandments with additional rules, setting a buffer around them so that they might protect the commandment stop people from breaking the commandments. So you have the central, clear, divinely revealed commandment, and they start adding these additional rules to prevent or make it what they thought impossible to break God's commandment, or at least make it more difficult. And here, here, with a group whose very existence is trying to prevent people from sin, the whole setup is inviting sin from their perspective. From their perspective, if Christ heals this man, he has broken the law. And so they're actually endeavoring to establish a scenario where rules are broken, where the Lord Jesus is brought in to, to bring a breach so that they might have more reason... I, to, for their hatred against them. I just want, when you see the depth of depravity there, the, the, these people walk around as the religious elite of their day, and there's no denying their devotion. But they're found out here. 
in trying to entrap Christ into sin, at least as they would view it. And they thrive on the discovery of sin. The, the, the ruler here, the chief Pharisees whose home they are all in, is actually, they say, they're setting up the plan, they're plotting what they're going to do so that they might lead Christ into a breaking, from their perspective, the law. In other words, the man is actually making his home a den of sin. It's startling. As I was reading over this, I was reminded in my mind of Proverbs sixteen twenty seven. The wise man tells us, an ungodly man diggeth up evil. And John Gill says of that text, such a man digs for sin as for treasure. He digs for sin as for treasure. It's like he's finding something precious in finding sin in another person. It may not be the direct context. They didn't have the means of communication and the context in which we find ourselves today, but there definitely has to be an application here with regard to our use of things like the internet. It's so easy to use this vehicle, this device, this a way of finding information for the purpose of finding sin. Now, there's a, there's a balance, I know. There's a balance of being aware of false teachers, being aware that there are men that must be marked and avoided. I, I, I get that that's a biblical principle that ought to be followed. But there has to be a balance between that and the kind of investigative journalism that could bring you into the condemnation of this text and bring you into the condemnation of the Pharisees right here. You're, you're trying... You're trying to find sin. You're looking for it. And sometimes it must, be, it must be confessed. We find dirt because we're looking for it. It's what, we, it's what we're looking for, so it's what we see. Maybe can't we get heightened senses for every possible breach. And if we're determined to find it, we have a way of exaggerating crimes to confirm our assumptions. We put the worst spin on it. This is not godly. Again, I know we live, it's complex, it really is complex. It was a lot easier back in the day where the only preacher you were aware of and had access to was the one that preached in the church that you could walk to. It was easier then. And you could hear about the great intellect of John Owen and the effective preaching of John Bunyan, but you, unless you were going to walk all the way there to hear them, you, you never had any access to them. And the same would be true of the, of the bad. 
those with their corrupt influences could only influence so far. So it's different today. I, I get it, but there has to be there has to be a preser. Here, here's the danger. There's greater danger, I think, in the corruption of our own souls by this kind of desire to find every possible evil in others that are around us. There's greater possibility of corruption in ourselves by that than there is by the influence of those that we are worried about preaching out there. Not that the other isn't possible, that corruption can't come that way. It is possible. And many come under the sway of, of personality cults and effective communicators that are false. It happens. But I, I, I worry. I worry about our own souls. We don't want to be those who go after evil as if it's treasure. That's what's happening here. And, and just as a practical application, the desire to ensnare Christ here is a warning to all of us. I made mention of this in the Sunday school this morning, but a warning to us with regard to our influence. I was talking to the young people, but it's the same for us all. Bringing people into a context where we might expose them to sin and not being sensitive to that. A context where some, and I guess this happens more among young people, so it's more relevant there, but they have, they have a movie night. They say they're going to have a movie night. Nothing inherently wrong with that, depending on what it is they're watching. But they, they set aside a movie, no one's seen it. Someone hits play, all of a sudden things start appearing on the screen and someone's conscience is bothered by it. Everyone should try to help in the avoidance of sin. It is not an opportunity to start calling people derogatory terms, holier than thou, you think you're better than everyone else. If that's the case, that's their problem. But we should endeavor to protect, not snare people into sin. So you have pride here. Such pride in the setup that is established here in these verses. But their pride also prevents repentance. Their pride prevents their repentance. From verse 3 and following, we were told Jesus answering spec unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go and answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. Now we're told in verse 2 of a man with dropsy. This is visible water retention. There is some failure of organ to the extent, and there could be a variety of organs that could, be, could result in this, but there's a failure of organs that are resulting in visible retention of water to the point that you can see the disease in the person as you look at them. So he's put there, he's placed there, he's invited there. I don't know how all that transpires, but the trap is set. And Christ, knowing what's going on, before he enters into it, he asks the question. He stands before the court, those that are set up there ready to have some kind of conclusion as to his actions. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? 
And they say nothing. At this point, you might say, well, they're just, they're not going to say anything because that might deviate or distract. This is, this is part of the plan. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Just, just put it there and let's see what he will do. So they all sit silently. And Christ proceeds. They held their peace, verse 4, and he took them and healed them. Oh, he knows. He knows. As soon as I do this, where their minds are going to go, what they're going to think, they're going to think, yes, we've got them. But Christ does not submit to the foolish thinking of men. He is on a mission to show that only by him can the curse be overturned. And he has been appointed and empowered by the Father to show evidence of his power to reverse the curse. And this man with his disease is going to be healed in a moment of time. Oh, our Lord Jesus Christ, don't forget it. When you see, sometimes we, we skip over this, but every time you see a sick person, my friend, that's you. That, that's us all. This, this, this is a depiction of sinners. Whether it be a leper or a blind man or someone with dropsy, it's, it's us. Us with our disease. The disease of sin. The corruption of sin. The feeling of death that envelops us. And Christ is the only hope of deliverance. If you're here tonight and yet without Christ, do not sense that feeling of death around your soul. Do not sense that there's no hope for you. There's no life in you. There is no salvation in you. You need Christ. I call upon you. Press into Christ. He will save. He will do it as immediately and as willingly as we have right here. We don't, we don't see the man begging for help. We don't see him asking for help. There's no interaction or dialogue that we're told of. Christ sees the problem and he knows his calling. My calling is to deal with problems like this. And that's how he looks at your sin. You see, look at the gravity of my sin. Preacher, I have committed the most awful sins. There's no way, there's no way God could save me. Wrong. This is the very purpose for which the Son of Man came into the world. To destroy the works of the devil, to give pardon for sin, and to show the efficacy of his shed blood. There is no sin that cannot be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is a reminder that sickness and death must be faced by us all. We feel it in varying degrees. We experience it in varying degrees. For some, it is more upon the mind. For some, it is more upon the body. For some, it is upon both. For some, it comes early in life. They don't remember a day where they are not in some way afflicted. For some, it doesn't come until the very, very end. They have had 80 years of never needing a doctor, never spending a night in hospital, never, even for a moment, requiring medication or anything. So the degrees to which we experience it vary. But we all experience it. And again, we look at this man and we wonder, well, why did he have dropsy? 
Was his past life catching up with him? Maybe. We don't know. How quick we are to immediately see the correlation between sickness and sin. And it's not always as clear as we like to view it. Obviously, in the whole scheme of things, there's a tight correlation between sickness and sin. It's because there's sin in the world that there's sickness. But I'm talking about specifically a correlation between a specific sin and therefore a specific sickness. And it happens. Scripture doesn't hide that. Physical infirmity sometimes is appointed because of sin. But you know what I was thinking about? How how wonderful, and this is hard to say and maybe easy for me to say since I am not presently enduring ongoing physical infirmity, but there, there has to be a perception of God's people where faith rises and sees that in the providence of God, sickness can function and in fact does function as a mercy. Think, think of it. Think, think of a life lived without any sickness whatsoever. Such a man, such a woman might think they are they're invincible, that, that they have no warning. They, they are like every person. They are, they, are, they are living their lives on a career, on a path to God's eternal judgment. And God never puts His finger on their body to, to remind them that this is not forever. That has to be seen as a judgment in a certain way. Should a man live his life and receive no providential warnings, even upon his body, that he is not here forever, that even providence refuses to communicate a message that would humble his proud heart? The Presbyterian minister of the 19th century, McShane, speaking to another man in the ministry, he was encouraging him to pray. And he said, if you do not pray, God will probably lay you aside from your ministry, as he did me, to teach you to pray. And that's a mercy. If a prayerless man is laid on his back so that he might learn afresh what it is to commune with God, that infirmity is a mercy from God. So Christ heals him miraculously. In verse 5 then, he then, he, he, he gives another opportunity. Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? Render your judgment. Of course, there was no problem with doing this. In all their setting up of rules, it made provision for a man who sees his beast in trouble on the Sabbath and he is is permitted to go and rescue that beast to show mercy to the beast. 
course, you can see the reasoning behind all of this. The Pharisee who Jesus Christ is going to deal with it in Luke 16, they, 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 they love mammon. They clamor after wealth. He, such a man wants to protect his wealth. He doesn't want to watch the deterioration of his prized creature being prevented from rescuing them because it's the Sabbath. So, so provision is made. This would have a, a monetary, a, a, a financial impact upon you. So provision is made for it. But what they would give to their, and extend to their animals, they would withhold from this poor man. This is, this is pride. Pride. They have no empathy, they have no sympathy, they have no heart, no compassion, no love, no care. And again, they have nothing to say. They could not answer him again to these things. There is no answer. He has exposed them. And here's the thing. Exposing the illogic, illogical rationale that's on display here, you might imagine they're going to repent. Surely they're going to waken up and say, you're right. You're right. We've been wrong all along. We confess our sin. We acknowledge our hypocrisy. We're proud. We need mercy. But no, they just, they just stand there, sit there, silent, unwilling to say a word. And it reminds us of, of our, our, our thought at times that the perfect apologetic argument is what's needed. No. Now, you can, you can speak so eloquently and forcefully and powerfully that there is silence, but no salvation. It takes the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God we need. And often, often the Spirit of God works despite the flawed thinking of the mind and the arguments of the heart. God saves powerfully. I don't, I don't know if Saul of Tarsus, on the road to Damascus, all of his issues, all of his reasoning for his hatred for Jesus Christ and his followers, I don't know if he was walking along that road and having all of those things answered. I doubt it. I imagine if you engaged in conversation with him 15 minutes before Christ comes to him, you would have faced the full wrath and indignation and, and his hatred toward Christ and his followers. But he is laid low. He is laid low by Christ revealing himself to him. And that's how men are saved. The work of God. It is not the work of man. As I was meditating on this, and I know I've got some differing applications here, but I, just, I couldn't help but think, you know, here is Christ on the Sabbath day in this house, enjoying this feast that is established or set up, and he could be on the streets healing hundreds of people. He could be in other places where there's great need, where the outcast are, where the greatest needs may be reflected. He could have he could be anywhere else where there is greater need. 
And yet he's not. He's right here. He's in this house, in this place, healing this one single individual. And it put my mind at ease and yet also raised another challenge. My mind at ease by the fact that we can't do everything. Even the Son of God in His ministry on earth could only be in one place as far as where He directly was ministering. Now, we know times He was able to heal from a distance. He is capable of all of that. But my point is, He conducted His ministry for the most part in in the direct presence, in the immediate presence of, of those that are before Him. And an argument could be made, well, Lord Jesus, there are so many other needs all over there, way over there. Why aren't you over there? Why are you just here? And that's a challenge we all face. Where, where are we meant to be? Where, where are we meant to minister? What, what place are we meant to be in at any given time? There's constant tension of voices calling us here and problems that need solved over there, and ministry needs in this place as well as in another place. And we can only do so much. So Christ has no problem being right here and dealing with what is in front of Him in the immediate. And that that speaks to us as well. What's in front of you, do that. But at the same time, it brings this challenge and the need for godly discernment. Where am I meant to be? What ministry am I to be engaged in? These are things we need the Lord's leading and help in. There is no time for pride. Christ has no time for the pride that is here that refuses to repent. They have no answer, but they refuse to repent. How this reflects so many men. But secondly, proud personal superiority. There's a sense of the superiority that is reflected then in verses 7 through 11. Let's read those verses. And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden, those that were invited. He's looking around, seeing all those invited. When he marked how they chose out the chief rooms or the places at the table, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. He that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room or place. When thou art bidden, go and sit, but when thou art bidden, go and sit in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher, then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them, that is, respect or honor, in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. The whole parable and scene culminates in the maxim of verse 11. This is the point. People exalting themselves, having high views of themselves. Now, obviously their weddings were a little different to ours. When we have weddings of this nature, often, though perhaps not always, often you will have names at the table which you go and you kind of look and see where you're meant to be and you sit where your name is and that's very helpful but in that culture there was an understanding you you go into it and there was a a sense of of where the prominent place is and working out from there and everyone was to have a, a sense of where they belong in that but what but what christ sees he marked how they i see they watched him. 
he was watching them as well. And he marked how they chose out the chief places. He saw them kind of jostling for position, trying to figure out where they ought to be or where they want to be. Personal superiority. So verses 8 and 9 tell us what not to do. Don't do this. Don't sit in the highest place, verse 8. Don't assume to yourself that right. That's what I see you doing. I see that in you. These are the, these are the religious elite. These, these people have just come from worship where they're falling down before God and expressing prayers of humility and acknowledging His greatness and power and their lowliness. And they, they come straight out of there into this place and they're immediately lifting themselves up. <laughs> this is man. Constant evidence of contradiction. And we do the same. I imagine we do the same. We, we, we can be right here in the place of worship, confessing our sins, acknowledging our need for grace, praising God for His goodness and His glory, and then we walk out of here and in the car on the way home, engage in some kind of discussion slash argument that is rooted in the pride of our hearts. Only by pride comes contention. Only by pride. You see that theme then worked out in Philippians. The Apostle Paul, in the midst of encouraging the church, he is, he is aiming towards the, 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 the problem that's manifesting there of pride and division in the church. And he is laying down the doctrinal and practical implications. Look at Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And there were people in that church that needed to hear that, needed to put it into action. So it's not unique to the Pharisees. It, it, was, in, it was in the first century church. It was in the Philippian church. One of the strongest, good, solid, gracious, generous churches of first century. And yet pride was there. So is it here? Is it here? Careful how you answer. Because if we say no, it's probably based on pride. If we say yes, but we're only saying it because it's the right answer, but we can't sense it or feel it in our hearts, there's a problem there too. They chose out the chief places. Ambition. Ambition. You young men in seminary, in training, or anyone in ministry, be careful of this. Be careful in ministry. Oh, how the devil loves to make inroads. Where there's a ministry and a group of individuals and they're laboring together Someone's in charge, appointing this, that, and the other, and someone starts to have their feelings hurt because they're being overlooked. They're not being asked. Be careful. God sets before His open doors, you know. He sets before His open doors. 
He puts us in places of prominence. By his appointment, we don't have to seek for it or look for it. And when he keeps us in a low place, it's for our good and for his glory. I remember my, my minister, the Reverend David Park, telling me of a particular scenario where and I, I, he didn't give any names, he didn't give any scenarios, so I have no idea who this person is, but it was someone who felt they were called to the mission field. And they came and presented the case before the mission board. It was to one of the nations in Africa. And the mission board analyzed, looked at it, looked at the person, looked at the opportunity or lack thereof or the needs or the financial demands or whatever. They analyzed it. They looked at it and they said, no. Or not at this time. I don't know exactly what it was. And the rumors that went around, the story that went around, fed by the individual who was left disappointed by the decision, was they have closed an open door. But beloved, the whole point of open doors that God opens is that no man can shut them. It can't be shut by man. What are we to do? You see it, verse 10 and following. Sit down in the lowest room, in the lowest place. You know, if you're, if you're asked, and some of our men have been asked, you know, could you, could, you, could you park your cars down in the lower parking lot to make space? Shouldn't be a problem. Shouldn't be a problem for anyone. That kind of thing is, should be easy for us. And if someone comes and then invites us to a higher place, friend, go up higher. Friend, would you, would you preach for me? Would you take this meeting for me? Would you, would you step in there and help in this ministry? Then you, you come to it, but you don't jostle for it. You don't scan the room and think, I'm the man for the job, and get upset when you seem to be overlooked. This destroys ministries, destroys churches. I say all this, by the way, and I'm not aware of any evidence of this in this body, so just to clear the air, someone thinks, well, what, is there something going on? Not that I'm aware of, but let's remedy it before there's a problem. So, our Lord Jesus, who perfectly exemplifies verse 11, whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. That, is that not Philippians 2 right there? Is that not it? He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And then he has given a name that is above every name and exalted. Beloved, this is the way. This is the way. When thoughts come in of our own superiority, of our longing for placement, whether it be in ministry or an election for the diaconate or elders and you don't get in and you think you should be there, please, please, please don't ruin your testimony. Don't rob glory from God. Don't spoil your own heart in this kind of proud thinking. We 
can't even begin to comprehend the condescension of the Lord of glory taking on flesh and dwelling among men. I mean, that, that level and degree of condescension is incomprehensible for us. And yet without it, we perish. And God's Word work advances, the kingdom advances when we understand our weakness, when we acknowledge our deficiency, when we say that we are the least or the chiefest of sinners, this kind of language, this apostolic New Testament language, this, this spirit is what God uses. And He takes the humble who feel their nothingness, but they're willing. It's not nothingness, it's not a sense of being nothing but sitting there unwilling to do anything and using I can't do anything as an excuse to not do anything. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. There should be I am nothing, but if God opens a door, if I am invited, if an opportunity is given to me, I will take it in God's providence that this is His will. And I will do it though I feel my weakness. I mean, I've seen this. I've seen it. You know, you, you start preaching, and I didn't start preaching because I decided I wanted to be a preacher. I started preaching because someone said, listen, would you preach here? Would you take this meeting? And I saw, I saw other young men who, were, who had this sense of putting themselves there. They wanted it. They jostled for it. It wasn't of God. Thirdly, then, you have this partiality, this proud, selfish partiality in the last few verses. Verse 12, Then said he also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. When thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. There will be a day of reward, and the Lord is going to note not just the fact that you were hospitable, and that's good, but what was the motive of the hospitality? Because the motive here is with the understanding that they can bid thee again, they can reciprocate, they have the ability to do that. And it's not saying that you can't have your friends. Is it the Lord Jesus saying, never have your friends, never have your brethren, never have your kids. That's not the point. He's not saying you can't have family get-togethers. But he is underlining this dominant sense that this, these are the only people that are ever welcome. Those within the same rank and status. Those within the same, whatever way you classify men however you rank them, they're like you. Don't be like that. Bid anyone, everyone. You see opportunities, have them there. We live in different days. We don't have the same amount of poverty. Or, let me put it another way, the poverty that we see today isn't the same as the kind of poverty that was very evident back then, it, it's changed. There's no doubt that the kind of dynamics of the problems have changed today. 
But there is a basic principle here of reaching out beyond into that which isn't in our comfort zone. It's like scanning the church and, and not inviting the first person you feel drawn to. Not only inviting, I should say, the people that you have a, a kind of kinship with. Is thinking about it, considering those that are there and saying, let's have that person, let's invite this individual, and they're different than you. And often it's way more refreshing. It's way more refreshing because they, they, they have a completely different dynamic. And what they contribute in that meeting is, in that time of fellowship and eating and dining together, is, is, is totally different. Some of you know loads about other people here. And then there are other individuals, you don't, you don't know them at all. Like, you do not know them at all. So there, there, there should be, there should be a sense of what the Lord is saying here. Take opportunity, make a feast, and call in other people that you wouldn't normally have. Thou shalt be blessed. Thou shalt be blessed. <laughs> oh, this is the kind of blessing. The blessings that come from above, not the blessings of men who say, thank you for inviting us and we would love to have you over next week. Oh, there's so much here. And there's going to be reward at the end. Thou shalt be recompensed. Thou shalt be recompensed. Again, I, I, the Lord has no problem with reminding us on occasion of, of the fact that there is reward degrees of reward for his faithful servants. And he uses it as a motivating factor. So this, this, this elevates us from the earthly to the eternal. It is helping us set our, our mind upon a more lofty accolade that comes from the Lord himself. <laughs> when I was first saved... I was working in a supermarket and the general manager of the store, first of all, I, I might look back on those days and say, I was just saved. There was a lot of the work of the Holy Spirit that needed to be done in my life. A lot of, you know, the previous me that was still there that the Lord was dealing with. But the, the general manager that was there, you know, sometimes he would ask you to do things that, that wasn't in your job description. Well, that's fine. That's, that didn't bother me. It was his little, it was his little quip when he would say it. When, when you would go, you know, he, he would say it and then off you'd go. And he would just have this little, as you were fading away. I think he, he knew I was a believer. So he would say, you'll get your reward in heaven. And it used to really bug, bug the life out of me. I was like, you know. But it's true. I mean, he might have been using it just to, <laughs> something to say. I don't think he really believed it. But the Lord sees the humble service in his name who labor and work not with a sense of man-pleasing, but with singleness of heart-pleasing God. He sees it. He will reward it on that day. And I, I, I imagine we will get, we will be surprised at the way those rewards are given out. 
and the way the Lord is going to take some of the most lowly, the most lowly we thought very little of, and He is going to take them. We didn't barely consider them. We didn't think they were very much, and yet their entire lives was a, was a life of devotion and quiet dedication in service to Christ, and the Lord is going to see every act of kindness, and He is going to reward them on that day. And it may exceed the reward of some of the greatest preachers from our perspective. Humility. Christ will expose pride. He has no time for it. Beloved, beloved, cultivate in your prayers a constant dependence. Lord, keep me low. Help me to stay low. Stop that little seed of desire for prominence and recognition and kill it, Lord. Kill it. And may you not leave out the preacher. Let's bow together in prayer. Pride is the most pervasive and stubborn sin of the natural man. It has a way of existing undetected and pouncing, just showing up in some way in our hearts and lives in a way that is destructive. May the Lord deliver us. And if pride has so filled your heart that you will not come to Christ, humble yourself. You will never be saved unless you come lowly to the foot of the cross. Lord, we pray, have mercy on us. May we learn the extent of the pride of our hearts and desperately desire to be rid of it. Extinguish it, please. By grace, subdue it kill all the carnal passions of our hearts. When those little voices desiring for prominence come up in our hearts, please, dear God of mercy, and whenever there's other voices of pride, proud of how lowly we are, proud of how holy we are, proud of how separated we are, proud of how knowledgeable we are, dear God, kill it too. Oh, fill our hearts by thy grace with deep humility, even the humility of Christ. So bless thy word that has been preached in this house today and in all houses that are faithful to thy word. Continue to extend thy kingdom and build thy church. Be with those who go downstairs for fellowship. Be with all thy people throughout this week. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.